Hello and welcome to the Lebanese Politics Podcast. My name is Benjamin Red, joined by Nizar Hassan as always. How's it going, Nizar? It's going well. How are you? I am stoked. We just wrapped up uh, season one last year in December. We had this huge party, right? You know, and, and I, I think that was a really fun thing to do as well. You know, like we got to meet a lot of our listeners. Uh, we got to talk a bunch of politics and, and of course, drink. Yeah, it was really fun. Yeah. And a good way to celebrate, you know, 30 episodes, the end of the season, the end of the year, and just sort of like wrap things up. So uh, thanks, everybody, for showing up. We also launched our YouTube channel. Woo! Yeah. We've got all of the full episodes there. And now we're uploading clips, so small clips from episodes from interesting parts of the discussions in every episode so you can check it out it's called the Lebanese Politics Podcast it's a channel on YouTube we're very creative yeah <laughs> uh, so yeah so I mean we're we're back for season two January you know I, I flew in less than less than a week ago uh, back from the States but I, I feel sort of like deja vu you know it, it's sort of a new year but same old shit yeah totally and, uh, starting w- with the weather of all things, right? I know, it was absolutely crazy last week. Seeing these boats on the Dubai Highway, you know, picking up people. And then um, they were talking, for example, to this guy from the civil defense. And he's like, yeah, I'm in one of these boats right now. Because of how flooded the streets were, it was absolutely insane. Yeah, we had uh, Storm Norma came through. I, I missed it. I flew in like right after it ended. It was beautiful. Lucky the weather, boy. yeah, like the... The, the really good thing about rains and storms here in Lebanon is that it sort of cleans the air so you can actually breathe. If you live in Beirut, the smog is just terrible. But after a rain, like you can actually breathe deeply and it is fresh and it smells nice and everything. So I got in right when it was beautiful. I, <laughs> I missed all of the craziness. But this is the thing. This storm, it, it wasn't just you know, like a nice thing. It actually caused a whole lot of problems, especially for like refugees who do not have permanent shelters or anything. And and are, you know, many of them are in makeshift tents, you know, out in makeshift camps. They were stuck in the snow. Yeah. Yeah. Exposed to the elements uh, and, and really not allowed to build anything more permanent or better structures because of fears that it would become permanent, right? Totally, and we talked about that with Nasser Yassin in our episode on uh, refugees. Right, and uh, we did have tragedy strike. An eight-year-old girl drowned in Minye during the storm as well. So uh, this kind of thing, uh, it's very sad, but it like keeps happening, right? Yeah, it happens every year. We see the same videos. Now when I get these videos on WhatsApp, I don't know if it's this year or last one because it's absolutely the same thing. Um, Hayesillam, the area, the very poor area and um, the southern suburb of Beirut is always flooding because they don't have a good water disposal system. A lot of it is just built like right on the Ghadir River as well. Yeah. Right. So people are just, yeah, their cars are drowning and uh, their furniture sometimes is just like completely ruined. In one of the videos this year, there was a guy who was stuck in like one of these water currents within the street. It was absolutely insane. You know, water is like one meter or one and a half meters. So huge damage to the poorest areas, unfortunately. Yeah. And, and a lot of people, you're talking about previous years, a lot of people have actually made a connection between Norma this year and five years ago in December 2013, Alexa, that came through and caused a whole lot, just widespread damage and and, and, and really just wreaked havoc back then. Back then, there was there were the same complaints, right? Of, oh, well, why isn't the infrastructure better? Why aren't we, you know, doing more to protect uh, the most vulnerable, the refugees, the the people who live, you know, in these areas like Hayat Salam? Why hasn't that happened? Oh, we're having that conversation again five years later after 
Storm Norma. Of course, yeah. If the government is not investing in infrastructure, no one else will. You know, nothing. There's nothing mysterious about this. You need proper infrastructure to get rid of the rainwater. Otherwise, people are going to be drowning and flooding. And we're we're going to see this deja vu, like deja vu times two, starting starting today. We're recording this on Sunday, and tonight we're supposed to have another storm coming through. I don't know whether the storm is called Tracy or Miriam. I've heard it called both so far. So. Anyway, it's supposed to be like a gigantic storm rolling in tonight. By the time you're listening to this podcast, you will know how bad it is probably. Uh, It's supposed to peak on Tuesday and then uh, subside, hopefully clearing up by Thursday or Friday. Stay warm and safe, everyone. Yeah. Uh, But yeah, like the weather, though, is not the only thing that's causing a sense of deja vu, right? There's also my erstwhile favorite topic of cabinet formation. Not anymore, is it? It, No, no, it's uh, not. It's... Uh, like, I still have a lot of passion for it, but that passion has been transformed into hatred Anger. and bitterness. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So as of Monday, it has been 235 days since Hariri was designated to form a government. We've had 237 days without a government. Um, this is now the second longest crisis in Lebanese history. Back when we left you last year, it was the third longest after, of course, the 2013 to 2014 cabinet formation crisis of Tamem Salem and the 1969 crisis, which culminated in the signing of the Cairo Accords, right? Mm -hmm. So now we have surpassed 1969. That is in the rearview mirror. And now we're still a long ways away, though, from from becoming the longest cabinet formation crisis in the history of the country. That's not going to happen until April, basically. So we've got we've got a little ways to go, but it seems as though there is basically no movement happening. No, nobody seems to think that anything is going to happen in the near future. And that's because we've uh, since we left you guys, we've had a couple of near scrapes like with, oh, we, we think that cabinets going to actually be formed. It looked really, really, really possible right yeah. before Christmas. Right. Uh, the if you remember, it's the, the Sunni six, right, that are holding things up right now. These Sunni six. They are non-future movement, non-Hariri Sunni, uh, Sunnis in parliament. And they're saying we want our own Sunni in the cabinet. Right. We want to be represented in the cabinet. So right before Christmas, it seemed as though they, everything was sort of coming together. They had decided, oh, well, we're going to put forward uh, Jawad Adra. He's going to be our candidate. Um, and, and Jawad Adra, he's the founder of Information International uh, Consultancy. Full disclosure, I also work for him on the side. I, I, I work for the Daily Star uh, full time. But like many people around here, I have a couple other irons in the fire. Full disclosure, I do some copy editing for him for the monthly. To me, I, you know, I personally really like the guy. He seems very smart. He knows what he's doing. Uh, he seems very competent. That said, uh, so so this was the guy, you know, nominated basically by the consultative gathering, the Sunni Six, to be their uh, minister. And it seemed like, oh, this is going to happen because Jawad Adra is pretty well respected uh, by a lot of different sides in the country. And then there was a dispute over exactly how Adra was aligned politically. If he were to become a minister, would he be, you know, blindly loyal to the Sunni Six, or would he sort of, you know, be his own man or would he uh, potentially be, you know, a part of another block even. And that caused the Sydney six to withdraw his name right before Christmas. And that just collapsed any hope that cabinet would be formed. And and since then, I don't think anybody has seriously thought cabinet would be formed anytime soon. Not at all. I think I, I haven't heard any optimistic comments about it since uh, just before Christmas when this happened. Yeah, afterwards, we did have something fun come up. Reportedly, Gibran Basile suggested a larger cabinet up to 
potentially even 36 ministers, which is a lot of fucking ministers. It's insane. Yeah. Yeah. They might as well just do it 128 and have every MP do uh, take a ministerial <laughs> portfolio in my opinion. I mean. Yeah, I, this is this is the joke. Yeah, might as well. Might as well. Yeah, but I mean th- this obviously uh, 36 ministers didn't get any traction. Nothing really has seemed to get any traction whatsoever. And and so now we're just sitting in this void where it just seems as though this is going to continue for the foreseeable future as in it could be months before we see a cabinet formed. And the politicians are busy discussing something else completely now. As far as I know, it's just all about the economic summit, isn't it? Yeah, and everybody's just sort of like forgotten that they need to form a cabinet at this point. So this Arab League event, the Economic and uh, Social uh, Summit for development issues related to development, etc. We have two main issues in it, right? We have one of them is the invitation of the Syrian state, which is which obviously is a center of, of controversy here because um, Prime Minister Saad Hariri, who is an opponent to the Syrian regime, is saying there's no discussion of this. I'm not going to invite the Syrian regime to the, to attend. Hezbollah is saying you have to invite them. And then all of these other political actors are somewhere in the spectrum, uh, according to, you know, the big spectrum that determines where you stand in Lebanese politics, which is your position on the Syrian regime, basically. But Aoun, the president, seems to be excited and determined to hold it anyway, to find a solution to this. And he doesn't seem to have a very strong opinion on whether Syria should be invited or not, right? Right. Michel Aoun came out on Monday and said, no, this summit is going to be held on time. Everything is going forward, regardless of any politics surrounding this. Nabi Birri, though, came out on Wednesday and said, uh, maybe it should be postponed, actually. We don't have a cabinet, so Mm. maybe it would be better if this happened a little bit later on down the road. Now, that's one of the issues, right, with this. But then it it seems as though Nabi Birri is also throwing some roadblocks, figuratively and potentially literally, in the future— (laughs) <laughs> in front of the of the summit, right? Because uh, he said that he opposes the Libyan delegation, right, being a part of this. Because obviously of the issue of Imam Musa Sadr, the founder of Amal Movement, who disappeared in Libya in 1978, and um, the Gaddafi regime was the main suspect in this operation, and Berry blames the Gaddafi regime for it. Which I don't really understand this whole, the logic, because Gaddafi is dead. <laughs> Right. The regime is no longer there. So I don't I don't really understand why, like how Birri connects the dots here. Yeah, me neither. I don't but I don't know enough about Libya to make uh, to make an informed like opinion about this. But it's strange because it doesn't Libyan politics podcast out there. We need to find it. Should if there be, is. They should be. Yeah. <laughs> so now we've got the invitation of Syria and then the invitation of Libya holding up this uh, this uh, economic summit. And at the same time, uh, we have the Arab League reassuring everyone that it's going to happen on time. So it doesn't. It's not very. It's not very clear what's going to happen this week. And there has been a suggestion even that Amal might close down the airport road to the Libyan delegation if they arrive uh, this coming week. And on the other hand, you have March 14 figures like Faris Saeed, uh, the secretary secretary general of the March 14 coalition, who sa- who threatened similar thing. He said, if Syria comes to the economic summit, we will boycott it, and we will also have protests to to try to block it or to hinder the the process. So threats from both sides. I I think the way things are supposed to go is there are a couple of meetings on Thursday and Friday and then Saturday and Sunday is the actual conference or whatever. And by the way, just a quick side note, the reason that Lebanon is hosting this event is because we didn't get the Arab League summit. We were supposed to, and then it got taken away from Lebanon, and this is the consolation prize. So, <laughs> FYI. Lucky us. Yeah. We got this summit, and we don't know how to do it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
Uh, and, and speaking of not being able to do things right, there's been a lot of talk about the economic crisis here in Lebanon and the potential financial crisis, which is something we've uh, talked about before on this podcast. Yeah, I think the country is just panicking about it, right? Everyone's talking about the economy nowadays. And actually, we did this survey of 1,400 people in Shufan Alay, the area where uh, the political group that I'm part of, uh, Lihaqi, were working during the elections, right? And among these, uh, the population of Shufan Alay, the the economy was kind of the number one concern with 23% of people saying this is the top priority that should be resolved in Lebanon. And that's quite normal because usually people, you know, complain or discuss things like unemployment among their priorities. But this time, the economy as a term or the economic situation was so prominent. It was 15% of people who just said something like the economic situation or the living conditions and the economic situation. So people are really, really like genuinely worried about this. So this is getting some popular currency right now. Yeah, and the comments made by Finance uh, Minister Ali Hassan Khalil uh, last week kind of worsened things a bit because he said he had a plan that was not public yet. That he, they were working on a plan to restructure the public debt of Lebanon. Right, this is according to comments published Thursday morning in Al-Akhbar. Exactly. Then the next day he made other comments to Reuters saying I did not say I'm going to restructure debt. This is not a government policy yet. It was just a plan of voluntary financial correction, etc. But it was enough to create panic among investors who have bought treasury bonds like euro bonds, the treasury bonds that uh, basically the Lebanese government uses to fund itself. And it's bought and sold by international investors all over the world. Right. And and he also said like he he spoke to Bloomberg as well. And he told them that rescheduling may be a part of the plan that he's he's preparing. But regardless, all of these these comments, they, they cause, like you say, like a sort of a tanking in the Eurobond market. Both Thursday and Friday, uh, this, this caused Eurobonds to drop to like record lows, right? And so we'll see what happens Monday uh, in this week. But th- this is definitely damaged confidence. Yeah, exactly. So in very simple terms, uh, buying treasury bills from the state is one of the main ways in which the state actions are funded. And if Lebanon wants people to keep buying these treasury bonds to be able to maintain its activities and not go bankrupt, it needs people to have confidence that the state is going to pay back all this money. And uh, when Khalil was quoted as saying that uh, they're going to restructure the debt, this means that a huge part of it would usually vanish if the country is not able to pay it back. And this this is the, the concern of investors. Why would you buy bonds if you're going to get back only 30, 40% of it, etc.? Right. And, and this was compounded by something, a report a week earlier from Goldman Sachs as well, right? Talking about, well, how much money would investors get if there were some sort of restructuring? Exactly. So after Khalil had mentioned uh, just before New Year's Eve, that the situation, the economic crisis has turned into a financial crisis. Goldman Sachs went ahead and did like an analysis of what would happen if the debt is restructured. First of all, they began the report confirming another thing they had said in an early report in December, which is that Lebanon can still f- sustain itself for a couple of years if uh, nothing major changes in terms of the amount of dollar and like the foreign exchange that exists within the, the country's economy. Right. And and just uh, so that our, our listeners are aware, this two year number, this is not something that Goldman just like pulled out of nowhere. The, this is something that you hear sort of like this is sort of the conventional wisdom that, OK, well, the baseline scenario is that we're good for a couple of years 
as long as nothing terrible happens, right? And and uh, my understanding is one of the ways that this number is arrived at is you just take the amount of foreign exchange that uh, the, the the amount of dollars that the central bank has, which they say they've got, you know, 40 billion or so, and you see how many months worth of, of imports that'll buy. That will come out to roughly 24 months. Exactly. Because as you explained in an episode with Dan Azzi, the episode titled The Lebanese Lira, the crisis, the economic crisis is that more dollars are leaving the country than entering it so this is the context for all of this but yeah like after these two years it seems that the country if nothing major changes if we don't have a transformation of the economy in a way that we start producing value here and exporting so more dollars come in then we will arrive at the point where we cannot pay back the debt especially with the very high interest rates that we're paying But nevertheless, Goldman, although they said it's unlikely that any debt restructuring would happen now, they analyzed the possibility, like the outcome, the possible outcome of such restructuring. And they said that if the goal would be to have sustainable finances for the Lebanese state, so if the goal is to never need another debt restructuring in the future, which is the purpose of any debt restructuring deal, then... 65% of the debt should vanish, should uh, be cut out. And this is a process that they call haircut. So this means that if you have $100, then you get back $35 worth of of your uh, bonds. But at the same time, and I like this thing about the the report, uh, it was realistic in this sense. It said, but you know, the symbolic, they call it symbolic. I love the neutral terminology that they use. The symbolic relationship between, you know, the state and the banks in Lebanon and the central bank and the bank means that there's a possibility that the process is not, you know, dispassionate. These are the terms that they're using, which means that the banks are in bed with the central bank government and the politicians, and they will get more of the share if something like this happens than someone else. They will get more assurances. They, They will find a way to not, you know, screw up the banks because literally the bankers are the most important economic powers and the the policies of the central bank for years has been have been criticized because of how much they favor the banks so i cannot imagine any debt restructuring process that would leave the banks with only 35% and that's it right and and if you look at the ownership of the banks and the control of the banks uh, you you see a lot of familiar uh, political faces or people who are connected to familiar political faces right a lot a lot right and and and, and part of that is because one of like really the best way to make money in Lebanon for the past eight years, at least, has been in banking. You you loan money to the government and the government pays you back with interest. Basically, you put money in the bank and then the bank would put money in the state. And that's how the bank is making profit. And it's being, paying you this high interest rates, right? Because what, what I was reading also in this Goldman Sachs report, which is a known um, piece of information, is that the banks own twice the size of their capital base in public debt. So the public debt that the banks own is twice the size of the capital. So this is how how much they are involved in. And most of their profits, the overwhelming majority of their profits is is through this kind of operation. So they're not loaning to industrialists who are producing things. They don't have these risk factors. The only risk factor is the uh, that the government cannot pay back, which is what we're talking about now. And, and so this is actually leads to a very scary scenario, right? Where if the Lebanese government defaults in some way on its debt, then that calls into question the entire freaking financial system. Which is, yeah, it's, it's scary, but it's also, I think, highly needed because if this is not sustainable, like a lot of people are now calling for um, debt restructuring as a policy and will be calling 
calling in the near future, in my opinion. And I agree with that because otherwise we know that we're not going to pay back this money. Why are we keep um, get, borrowing more money with high interest rates? And if you know we're not paying it back and what will be the thing that, you know, what will be this moment where we realize, oh, let's do a debt plan. So we have to do it now. We have to or either reduce the high, huge interest rates that we're paying to banks, have a deal with them, freeze paying for five, 10 years as part of some economic revival plan or, you know, restructure it and uh, do um, a dramatic haircut that would ensure we can, you know, sustain the state for the future. Right. And, and uh, just to give our listeners an idea of the numbers involved here, we're, we're talking about about $85 billion in debt. That That's what the, the, the gross sovereign debt is about right now. Um, and that is about one and a half times GDP. Exactly. Uh, and that's that's the third highest in the world. And then you have the deposits in the central bank, which are different. They are not sovereign debt, but they are actually, in reality, concretely, they're basically the same thing. But it's a completely different process. When you put the deposit in the central bank, it means that you're lending the state the money. But instead of lending the actual state, you're lending this independent institution that is called the central bank. But who is funding all of this? It's only taxpayer money and and uh, the public debt so there's no other source of uh, of funds for that so these dep- deposits in the central bank are not usually counted as part of the debt but they should be in one way or another and economists who calculate it who make the case that they should be counted estimate the total debt with the deposits to be over 100 well over 100 billion dollars so this but this part is a bit like hidden you know compared to the more obvious public debt yeah i, I mean no matter how you look at this there there's this huge problem that's becoming more and more apparent uh, and 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 if you you take a step back and you see the finance minister actually you know s- saying some pretty scary things that that's a new thing in the in this episode we, we've been talking about you know deja vu a lot this is not deja vu a finance minister coming out and really rattling markets like this means there is something, you know, really scary happening, potentially very devastating that could be coming up. And so that means I think this is something we are going to be talking about a lot more in the future on this podcast. And and this also means that there, there are reactions to this as well. People trying to right the ship, not just with uh, Khalil's plan that he's he's trying to figure out as far as the debt goes, but also uh, like on the broader economy, right? And and we had something uh, just in the past couple of weeks come out about that, the long-awaited McKinsey report. Yeah, we were waiting for out. that. We were trying to find leaks. And then finally, the economy minister released it. Uh, it was not a final draft, but everything was final except one thing. And this is an interesting fact about the report to start with, which is that the only slides in the 1,274 slides that are part of the report uh, that are still not final are the ones relating to which government agency would or which government body would be formed to lead the transition. So it's all about kind of the political shares of different political actors. And this is why they haven't agreed on it. You know, is it the prime minister's office or some minister what happens in the in the transition team and then later on, etc. But it's funny, if you look at the report, this is the only slide where they have this circle saying like, it's it's not final. Yeah, and, and, and the report is huge. And, and it, there's also an Arabic version that's like 300 pages. It is just a massive, I, I, I was having coffee with an acquaintance the other day and he was like, it's a massive data dump. <laughs> Really? Yeah. So, so much data there. And they cost us, you know, $1,100 per page. <laughs> we paid $1.3 million for, yeah. this, for this report. Yeah. But yeah, as you said, it's a huge data dump. But it's, you know, it's, it's very useful, in my opinion, to, to read it. Because it's like a reference with all these 
studies, all these surveys that every time one of like any public policy researchers trying to do a study on on on, the, on microeconomic policy or something a specific sector, then they need to use these studies. This one has all of them. You know, it's a nice thing to have. But the main point of the report was to diagnose the issue with the Lebanese economy, why it's been s- slow, why it's been you no know, weak, and then propose recommendations. The thing about this report as well is that there's nothing really new here, right? There's nothing startling on this. All of the sort of problems that they point out are, are things that we knew already. It's just they're doing it in like one place. And and, and there's, there's, you know, some new data points as well, but they all sort of like support that same thesis that if you've been paying attention at all over the past five years, you know, you, you know what the problems are already. That being said, I'm still sort of like working my way through it. Uh, and we're going to be back next week with a, like a, a deep dive into this report, into what it says about the economy, but also the recommendations that it has uh, of how Lebanon can theoretically get out of this economic morass that it's in. But that's not the only response to these crises that we're seeing, right? There's also just direct action on the streets, something you know a lot about, Nizam. (laughs) Yes, indeed. I mean, people are back on the streets. Activist groups are full mobilization mode. I'm part of like the political group, um, as I just mentioned. And you guys were out yesterday, right? Yes, we were protesting yesterday. We walked from the Ministry of Labor and Sharafi to the Ministry of Health and Jnah, demanding better worker rights and uh, a public healthcare system that caters to everyone uh, funded by taxes. How, how many people showed up to that Saturday protest? It was a midday protest, uh, so it was during the high traffic and stuff like that. We had around 400, 450 people, up to 500, I think, in my estimation, but I don't have any scientific numbers. Yeah. But it was the, the number of people expected in this kind of protest because it was not a big demonstration, it was not a Sunday, etc. Um, many people were still at work or we're just not in the mood for a protest in the middle of the only sunny day of the week etc you know and, so- and, and, and if you're listening to this thinking that like oh 400 500 that's a really small number well yes but a lot of times with a protest like protests get announced all the fucking time in this country yeah and most of the time it's like a dozen people yeah a lot of times so exa- th- exactly so this is actually like a, a pretty big number yeah i mean it's 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 a big number for a small protest and then you have the popular protest when people just just the public starts joining and that's completely different as happened but this is what happened in 2015 mostly but i mean over the last few weeks we should mention that this is like kind of the continuation of the, what has been happening over the last few weeks since the mid-december First, there was the march of the Communist Party with its allies, which was the biggest, uh, with up to 7,000 people marching. And then this was kind of the, the things that started the wheel. And then everyone was like, oh, the streets are moving. We have to, we have to uh, mobilize now. This should be our priority. And then we had... Uh, these Facebook um, activists or social media activists, as we call them, people who are just always talking about public affairs on social media, who started mobilizing on the twentieth on the twenty third of December. We had a protest uh, led by these people, which is which is interesting because it was more chaotic than other protests led by activist groups with experience. At the same time, it was like very diverse in terms of demands. Everyone was demanding something different. Um, it was more spontaneous than what we usually see, but it also included clashes, not clashes, basically violence by... The security services took a very heavy hand. Yeah, it, right? they like did. Even they, like they, they, they choked and beat uh, one of my colleagues, Hassan Shaban, uh, who's a 
photojournalist with the Daily Star. He was telling them, I'm a journalist, I'm a journalist. They didn't care. The Lebanese armed forces, the Lebanese army, you know, they they decided to beat him anyway. Yeah, I mean, it was unnecessary, you know. It was too much violence for uh, a relatively small protest. We're talking about a couple of thousands maximum. So it was not needed. Um, but I think they were trying to send a message because they were afraid that this uh, trend of accumulating protests will be getting bigger very fast and then, like, getting out of hand. So I think the political class, they had a consensus that this should be stopped before it happens. This is my my analysis of why the armed forces, both the police and the army, were so heavy-handed that day. But this didn't stop people from, you know, calling for other protests. They skipped New Year and Christmas, and then uh, they called for some activists called for the for a general strike on the fourth of uh, January. Uh, it was mostly a bunch of businessmen who are like so fed up with the system, and then um, a bunch of um, activists from uh, groups like uh, the political party Sabaa, more like center. Like, more like liberal a political group that is um, that has a lot of businessmen in it in its leadership. Uh, Paulo Yaoubian is uh, their MP, their their only MP. Exactly, and in collaboration with the General Federation of Labour, which is an infamous labour organization that has been completely co-opted by the the ruling elite, specifically Parliament Speaker Nabih Birri, as everyone knows. And they launched this uh, general strike. It was a bit weak, but you know it created some conversations around the current country, which was. Okay, and then uh, Kata'ab and the Progressive Socialist Party actually visited the Federation of Labor and they said, we support the strike. It was a bit of a surreal situation and nothing really made, nothing threatening, in my opinion, to the situation. And then we had another protest uh, uh, scheduled for the 6th. It was postponed because of Norma, the, the storm. And now after Saturday, we also have a protest happening today, Sunday, um, by the Communist Party and its allies in different areas of the country and then next week and on the 2nd of February. So this thing just will keep on happening. We have people moving and talking about things like for the first time in a long time, talking about things like tax justice and economic justice and, you know, how the state should handle the economy rather than only demanding things like reform and no corruption and better environmental policy, etc. Yeah, and the question for me on these protests, they're, they're certainly going to continue, but will they actually st- turn into anything sort of like with with mass appeal or with like really large numbers, tens of thousands of people coming out or not? I don't think so. Not anytime soon, because I every time I talk to someone about these protests, the first reaction is like nothing's going to happen if we go to the street. But also because people think that why would you know, why would I waste my Sunday on a protest if nothing's going to happen? Nothing's going to change. And the issue here is. What are we really trying to do through these protests? You know, I completely understand the idea that nothing is happening because of the protests. But at the same time, if you don't take the streets, where are you going to voice this opposition to a ruling elite that seems to be, you know, in some issues very um, antagonistic and other issues quite friendly with each other? You know, on economic issues, no one's saying we will tax the rich, but we are saying now hey, you know, the tax system is totally unfair. You're not taking enough money from those who are benefiting from this horrible economic system over the last 20, 30 years. Start taxing them well, and maybe you can fund our social programs that we're demanding. So this is kind of thing, this kind of thing is is, is kind of like fermenting among activist groups who previously were more concerned with things like corruption and reform, because in majority they are middle class uh, activists who are from, you know, liberal professions and and NGO workers, etc. Yeah, so this is sort of, I think, the big story. And it seems to me as though this may end up being the big story of 2019, just 
the economy, the potential financial crisis or, you know, Lebanon sort of teetering on the edge right now. All of this stuff is stuff that I think that we're going to be talking about a whole lot this year. Yeah, definitely. Season two, 2019. Here we go. (laughs) Thanks for tuning in. We'll be back next week with that deep dive into the McKenzie report. Until then, I'm Benjamin Red. I'm Nizar Hassan. And this has been the Lebanese Politics Podcast. The Lebanese Politics Podcast is brought to you by myself, Nizar Hassan, Benjamin Red, produced behind the scenes by Susan Wilson, and the music is by Omar Elfil.